Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. In 1993, the famous hip-hop group, the Wu-Tang Clan, released a song called Cream, which stands for Cash Rules Everything Around Me. While one might quibble with that premise philosophically, learning how to manage your finances is no question an important part of any physician's career. In this episode, we interview Shane DiNapoli, a chartered accountant based in Calgary, Alberta. We talk to him about some of the common mistakes he sees physicians make with their finances, physician corporations, and the financial advice that he has for physicians starting out in their practice. Mr. DiNapoli, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel. Can you tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up and your pathway to your current uh, profession and business? So my background is I'm born and raised in Calgary. Uh, it was actually, I think I was born the Children's Hospital. But yeah, some, one place, wherever my mom told me I was born. But I was born here in Calgary. Went to uh, high school here, um, University of Calgary. Actually graduated from the University of Calgary back in, I'm just trying to read my degree. What's it say? 92. Um, And then after I graduated from the university, I uh, wanted to go into finance, quite frankly. I mean, that was my first choice. But in 92, there weren't any jobs in finance. I think Goldman Sachs hired one person from the University of Calgary, and it wasn't me. So, you know, my second choice was to get my CA back then. And so I ended up articling with a national firm uh, for a few years and had no desire to do tax. Didn't even, didn't want to, if I'd known I was going to have to work this hard, I think I would have uh, chose a different, maybe chose to be a teacher or something. So I got my summers off, but uh, it was too late by that point in time. I had worked at a uh, national accounting firm in public companies, actually. So it was as close to finance as I could have got. And during my time working with these public companies, particularly back then when the Alberta Securities Commission was a little fast and loose and there were a lot of uh, startup oil and gas companies, I got to see some exciting things happen. But Companies would come and go. They would start and fail. Um, and I found that environment just a little too distressing and decided to go into tax. And uh, back then, it was a two-year tax program where, you know, you would, you would get your in-depth tax program without any exams. So it was a cer- certainly a certification process. But it was, the, it was actually quite a nice, easy path, relatively speaking, because I didn't have the stress 
of exams or some sort of oral process. And through the tax pro- program, ended up finding, you know, my calling, I guess is, is what I would call it today, which is I found it fascinating. Um, There's nothing more fun than helping somebody uh, that could afford my fee with a problem that I could solve, you know, rather somewhat creatively, or uh, certainly with a number of options available. And, you know, and then from there, it just sort of led to the last 20 years of my practice. You know, in, in full disclosure, you and I have known each other for, for a long time, and, and you've certainly been uh, a savior for everything financial for, for me. And I, I, you know, I, I thank you publicly for that, as well as privately. But, you know, I, I'm hoping maybe that uh, we, we can be super honest here, or at least I, I can. And it's clear that physicians in general are notoriously poor with, with finan- the financial world in general. And we can, I think, both throw out many, many caveats of, of scenarios that we've seen, uh, you know, friends and colleagues and in, in, in your business um, having done that. How do you sort of frame the financial side of things for a physician, whether it's spending or saving or how do, how do you approach that? Because I, I don't think it's intuitive to us. And I certainly don't. I know it's not intuitive when you're starting out your, your career in medicine. Uh, well, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of the context of framework, uh, you know, I find it fascinating, right, that, you know, uh, dealing with physicians, um, you know, and other professionals, that there's this massive investment of time and energy in a career, part of which has, you know, significant financial rewards. So, you know, there's this huge effort. And yet, at this exact same time, there's a almost willful blindness to the management of the wealth that comes with it, which is no different than any other life skill that you just find, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's a function of the profession or the nature of the person that the, the education, right. Of the wealth management that, you know, it comes part and parcel with any successful professional, particularly um, with physicians it seems to be, you know, left until after residency is completed, right? You know, it's then- totally, I mean, it's completely missing. We, you might get one three-hour session in a five-year residency and never think or talk about it again. You're totally right. You know, and I think what's fascinating about that is, and, you know, we were just talking about this before the before we started recording, which is, is this blind faith or this con- conversation where, I'll trust a colleague, right? You know, and it's only over the last 20 years where I make this, you know, this uh, covenant, I guess, with with clients, which is I promise not to practice medicine. If you promise not to practice tax, right? Like, let me, you know, explain it to you. Don't take advice from friends. Certainly get, you can use friends or colleagues as sounding boards. But when it comes to, say, wealth management, uh, you know, everybody's a bit different and their circumstances are so specific and the rules now are so uh, nuanced that being educated on that process generally requires talking to a professional. You know, there, there are very few textbooks today, I think, are well structured for someone that's not already versed in tax. So the best way to become aware or the best you know, context for that framework is, you know, 
why wouldn't you talk to a professional about your wealth management? And at the front of that would be tax. I mean, it's the largest bill any professional will incur in their lifetime. You know, after $200,000 a year, you're in partnership with the government. They're taking half. It makes me think back to um, my experience in grad school. And I think I've told you the story before, but I lived with a roommate who was moving through UBC to try and essentially become uh, a trader. And I watched him and, and lived obviously in close proximity with him for two years, 18 hours to 20 hours a day. That's all he slept ate and breathed. He had multiple monitors. He was learning his craft. And I remember at that time thinking, oh yeah, right. It's sort of like me. Like, you know, there's, he's out there learning at the same, at the same, with the same intensity that I'm trying to learn my craft at. I can never compete with that, nor, nor should I ever try. Well, I mean, I guess that takes us into the, you know, like the, the biggest common trend, right. You know, that I'm seeing today is just that where people are, Certainly the next generation and a lot of residents that I've met over the last couple of years um, are astutely aware of that, actually. And they're starting to come and get the advice before they get surprised by either some sort of financial commitment or tax bill. And, you know, and so that trend that gives me hope, right, that, you know, whatever mentorship's happening, that at least that message is getting through today. Right. Is that, you know, first and foremost, you want a good you want a good advisor. You want a a few good advisors, quite frankly. Right. You want a good somebody on the wealth, you know, on the finance or investing side, on the banking side, on the tax side, um, you know, and collectively you want a team. But that each, you know, each person will bring something a little bit different to the table. But that if those conversations are being had post-residency. You've already missed out on two or three years, and certainly we've we've had those conversations while you were doing your fellowship, right? Where, you know, had we not had those conversations, there would have been some surprises, I suspect. I kind of have a two parter question for you, and, and the first is sort of a comment in that, you know, I think part of the the reluctance to learn more about uh, the finance side of things is just that. Um, you almost feel a bit guilty as a as a resident or as a as a you know newly minted surgeon about making money off of what has been your sort of your craft and your art for the last uh, you know however many years and so you there's almost like a guilt factor associated with that i wonder if you see any other do you see any trends like that among surgeons in particular and are there any differences in the way let's say surgeons manage their money versus other physicians you know, I mean, in one sense, you're talking to the wrong person. There's no such thing as making too much money, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, in in the sense of, you know, the, it, the market dictates. Uh, but that it, absolutely, there is a, there's an element of I'm making all of this money, but I'm not very. I don't know whether or not I'm, I'm managing it responsibly, or whether or not you know I should even be asking these questions. And you know, I think that goes back to certainly the the evolution of of the career or the progression where there's very, very little spoken about wealth management during, you know, the early phases of a career. Right. Um, I think it's more so it is, I think it certainly is highlighted with surgeons. I can think of one 
instance, this would have been years ago where I I had a resident surgeon and his, uh, his accounting records consisted of a literal shoe, Nike shoe box. And so, you know, and part of that, I think, you know, certainly with time or with experience, I've come to realize was you have a very difficult decision, I think, as, as most professionals do, which is where do you spend your time, right? So if you can work an additional shift or you can make, you know, maybe somewhere between, I'm going to make a number up between five and $10,000 versus spending a day organizing your finances, quite often organizing your finances will take a backseat to that decision. And so from that perspective, I think surgeons certainly top the list in that regards, uh, or, or more so than perhaps some of my, my the other profession, the other specialties that I, that I deal with, which is so much, all of your, you know, time and effort is best utilized generating revenue relative to the return on the wealth management. The long-term consequence of that obviously is you may not have a good wealth management strategy, which really can harm you later in your career or later in your life. But it's a, that's such a difficult, I think, conflict that that does arise, right? You know, amongst amongst surgeons, but in particular, where you know, yeah, it's not at all surprising for me to have a surgeon client who's either late in filing simply because they've been too busy, so busy with work or they're, they're not able to retain the details that were covered in say their, you know, their year end meeting where we've discussed some of these planning considerations. And by the time they've left the office, they've completely forgot because they've gone back to work. So let me ask you this, you know, and I'm being selfish here as someone who's just starting out my career. What are some of the, like the concrete things that you tell all young physicians or young surgeons when they're starting out that they need to do from a financial health perspective to avoid the problems that you've highlighted? And and I'm, I'm thinking even like, you know, when, I, when in the lead up to this podcast, I was asking some of my friends who just graduated uh, residency and are out working in, in community practice. Um, and one of them, uh, Misha Horkoff asked, uh, you know, like, what are there any, for example, apps that you'd recommend uh, that physicians use or or that you recommend to your clients? So can you give us some some concrete uh, tips and tricks uh, for any young physician starting out in their practice? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first thing would be you want to develop a relationship with a professional, with an accountant, tax, a tax filer right away. Right. You know, so that'd be the first thing. And you really want that person to fit your personality. Right. And so, you know, there's zero harm in interviewing two or three accountants. My feelings are never hurt when it's not the right fit or vice versa. Someone will come and see me after. So that'd be first and foremost. Right. The second thing would be is to keep things as simple as possible. Right. In the context of managing your finances. So you really want to be able to track or be aware of how much money, what your earnings are, what your expenses are. And the easiest way to do that wouldn't be necessarily be an app it would be you know a strategy that that you keep you're you're from personally familiar with so if you like using excel you want to track an excel if you want to just use your bank account to track what your bank account activity is that's how you would do it but it would be a matter of you know if you don't know how much money you made you can't necessarily expect 
anyone else to know. And knowing how much money you make, then from there lead all other answers, right? So if you know how much you've made this year, for example, I'm going to make a number up, $600,000, and you have $200,000 left, well, then you know you've spent four hundred. dollars And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. You can certainly then go, okay, well, what did I spend the $400,000 on? And you can track that in either you know an app, uh, you can do it on an Excel spreadsheet, or you can just keep it as simple as look at your bank statement. And, and you know, and by doing that, you start to become familiar with your own patterns. And so, you know, the difficulty with some of these apps that are out there is they're designed by accountants for accountants. And the problem with that is is going to either result in a bunch of data that's not going to make sense to you, or it's going to miscode it and mislead you. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, there are, I think that the simplest approach would be to use your actual bank statement and your credit card activity, right? You know, to sort of have a good snapshot and it should be done at a minimum monthly, right? You know, most bills are monthly and most activities are monthly, you know, in terms of how the, how people will view their, their budgeting. And so, you know, that, that, that'd be the front and center, hands down. That's such wise, you know, advice. And it's shocking, I think, um, at least in particular for me as the son of an accountant, um, in terms of looking around and seeing how, how rarely that happens with physicians and surgeons, even well into their careers. Like it seems to be, there seems to be confusion when they're honest enough to share it with what's coming in, what's going out. Um, which I guess can happen, but it's, it is interesting. Um, you know, Shane, one of the things that you're well known for, obviously, is professional corporations and, and how to leverage them and, and utilize them and, and construct them. I was wondering if you could, for our surgeon listeners, talk a little bit about um, that world and, and how you frame that world and maybe even what your sense of, uh, in terms of a crystal ball, how is that world going to be changed with our current federal government, do you think, in the future? Oh, well, let's unpack that. Um, there's, you know, there's a few things in there that I find, you know, I think worth worth merit. Uh, first thing, professional corporations are a relatively new concept in terms of taxation in general. So taxes have been around for over 100 years, at least here in Canada, um, you know, with corporations and individuals. And it's really only since 1984 that professional corporations have become a thing. Um, you know, so that's not, that's not really that long ago in the big scheme of things. And, and historically, uh, and, and, and I would say this is only since, geez, uh, maybe 2005, a professional corporation would have been created for only one of two reasons, right? Reason number one, deferral, right? And, and all I mean by deferral is if you understand the concept of an RSP, then you understand the concept of deferral. You put money away or you hold it in a certain legal entity. And as a result of doing so, you avoid paying tax to one extent or another. It, and, and so for an RSP, you just don't pay any tax on the amount you've contributed to the RSP until you withdraw. With a professional corporation, the same is true to the extent that you don't pay any tax on having received that income personally. And so at the corporate level, you'd either pay 
at least here in Alberta right now, 11% or 25.5%, depending on how much income is earned in the corporation. And so the deferral is the difference between the tax rate paid at the corporate level and the tax avoided that would have been incurred personally, right? So if we assume that you're at the subject to the highest marginal tax rate of 48%, um, on the first $500,000, presuming there's no impairment in your small business deduction limit, pay 11%. So there's a deferral of 37% on 500 grand. So no small sum, right? And then on the amount in excess of the 500,000 that's retained in the corp, there's a tax rate, an effective tax rate. It's being indexed right now because Alberta's dropping it, but for ease of simplicity, we'll say 25%. And so the difference there between 48 and 25% is 23%. So still no small sum, right? And so by using a professional corporation you and retaining the money in the corporation, right? You can realize this benefit of tax deferral, which theoretically would be realized when you take the money out of the corporation at some later point in time. The other reason to incorporate was to income split. And so that reason survived between 2010 and 2000, sorry, 2005 or thereabouts and 2015. And in 2015, there was, well, sorry, 2017, there were some changes to income splitting. And so that reason has gone away. So, you know, unless you're over age 65 or uh, you're no longer practicing, the income splitting benefit is postponed or, or no longer available. But the deferral benefit stays there. Now, this deferral concept has been around for the last 100 years, right? Uh, John A. McDonald debated this when they introduced the uh, Income Tax Act originally, and they had a different tax rate for corporations and individuals. And the argument was, why should you be able to use a corporation to avoid tax um, that would otherwise be paid personally? And in response to that, they said, you won't be able to avoid tax indefinitely. You have to pay tax when you take the money out. Now, I'm paraphrasing for, you know, for, the, for the point of not boring everyone to tears, but the idea of this deferral has survived. Now, there's been a number of changes uh, with this current government. Uh, they, they don't like prof uh, professionals, and they particularly don't seem to like physicians from a tax taxation perspective. If it feels personal, I think it's because it is, because a lot of the legislation has been designed to make the use of professional corporations appear unfavorable. The advantage of these new changes, or, or I think one of the good things, given the complexity of the Income Tax Act, is that it's only the appearance that uh, exists. In fact, professional corporations are more advantageous today than they've ever been, right? And, you know, and that's the irony of what's happened over these last three years, is the federal government has increased mar the highest marginal tax rate for individuals, and they've reduced the tax rate for corporations. They've made the reason to use a professional corporation greater than ever before, right? You know, historically, uh, here in Alberta, the highest marginal rate, even just four years ago, was 39%. And, you know, by increasing it to 48%, they've increased the benefit of deferral. In the same timeline, they've reduced the tax rate 
of corporations, at least you know, in the first 500 of the small business deduction limit, they've reduced that rate by 3%. And so they've actually made the use of professional corporations more advantageous. You know, and, and so, you know, where do I see that going? I think the government, you know, historic, the federal government historically has wanted to discourage behavior that trends as an erosion to the government's tax base. Now, I'm just guessing. I don't know anybody at finance anymore. Um, and, and obviously, I wouldn't be privy to those conversations. But, but what they've done is they've created this perception that professional corporations are bad or investment income in professional corporations is bad. And I think the perception was all they were actually trying to achieve. And so, you know, where I think see things going in the future, well, I, I don't see them blowing up professional corporations anytime soon without having to rethink taxation as a whole, right. And the use of corporations. Now, you know, every time I've made a prediction, I've been wrong. So I don't want to jinx it for every professional, <laughs> but I just don't see them dismantling this structure, given all the pushback they had three years ago. Is you know you you mentioned a little bit um, in terms of Alberta versus maybe other places. Is there a lot of variability either in concept or in actual numbers when you move from province to province? No. No, the, the utility of the professional corporation survives everywhere in this country. I actually had somebody in Icolet. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. And we had to create a professional corporation that we couldn't find a lawyer to create a professional corporation for Icolet because they don't have a corporations act. So we had to do it federally, actually. But even there, this benefit, this deferral structure produce the same benefit. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. I honestly had no idea. I figured it was quite different from province to province. So that's fascinating. Can, can you give us your sense of, you know, you, you maybe you, you said it initially and you said, there, you know, ideally a, a team when you're starting out would be a financial advisor, a tax uh, expert, um, you know, with an accounting background and so on. How how do you sort of frame or how do you how do you look at the financial advisor world? Because I also think, you know, that's a an area where we struggle significantly. You know, personally, that I've I've struggled in that. I, my sense always in meeting bank, with quote unquote bankers and and these financial folks attached to large banks um, is that they see the world very differently from from us, and they they uh, you know w- w- without being impolite. Are sort of not the don't have the viewpoint that I really want to be around so much. Ah, you know, um, you know, I've got some very good friends in finance, actually, and one of the challenges I find with the industry is that the model is based on you leaving the money with them. Like there isn't an endpoint. Like you know, and I find that fascinating, you know, because as an account, like, you know, over, over my career, like the, the corporation is just a tool, right? So at some point, it'll, its utility will either expire, but, but there, it's still, it's a function of its utility. Whereas, you know, wealth in general, 
right? Well, it's your wealth. They're like, so when it's with an advisor, that the, the difficulty I find in those instances is the relationship is based on giving them more, you know? And so there's this, this direct conflict, right? With the advisor of you, them, you ended up working for them. Like, so, you know, the one, the one, the one caution I would give every resident and certainly anyone early in their career is, and we've had this discussion even before, there's nothing wrong with cash, right? At the beginning, like, you know, rushing into one of those relationships where uh, putting your money in the market or having it tied up with an investor, well, that's only useful if there's a game plan as to how much you're going to get back, right? On retirement or at some future point in time. And, and if there isn't that frank conversation, right, you know, it's usually based on the assumption of, oh, well, tell us how much money you want for retirement and we'll tell you how much money you have to give us now. Well, what if, you know, what if those assumptions aren't actually valid? You know, why, you know, why are you agreeing to give somebody, you know, a million, two million, three million dollars of your money today uh, on the promise that you're never going to get it back and all you're going to do is get a return, but that that return is a function of the market, which the advisor doesn't have any control over. Right? And that's a very difficult proposition to, I think, deal with in the context of what are you giving them your money for? You know, whether you uh, invest in the stock market, you invest in savings, invest in real property as a tax advisor, right? It doesn't matter what you do with the money in your professional corporation. You can buy lawn gnomes for all I care if they can appreciate, right? And have a collection of lawn, lawn gnomes, but it's, whether or not you can convert that back into cash at some later point in time. And I don't think those conversations are had often enough, right, as to why you would give the advisor money and then what is your expectation of getting it back. And I, and I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the aspects of the industry that it, I think is a challenge. I think it's a challenge for the, the, for the, uh, for the client. And then it's a challenge for the industry because clearly they don't make any money if you don't have any money with them. And, and you know, and that, that raises, you know, that's a, that's a very difficult, everyone I find is, falls differently on the spectrum on that one. Well, I think that highlights what, you know, what, what you've always taught me and, and told me, and I've, I've certainly taken it to heart, which is that you, you probably have to figure yourself out before you can walk into those, those rooms or those meetings and, and uh, and move forward in a, in a productive way. Uh, to your point, are, are you trying to build some vault of of money for when you die, or are you trying to you know return to zero at, you know as you die, or or what does that look like? And I I think again we probably don't do ourselves any service by not sitting down and thinking about that at a deep level, intermittently, and then you know re- refreshing that that thought as well as we go. And it all may also change, and I think that's the other part of it is. If it does change, if your needs do change, you know, because it's just uh, in terms of what what wealth management looks like, there's there's two aspects. There's the security, right, which is what happens if you can't work tomorrow? Can you access mm-hmm. the money? And then there's the return on your wealth, right, or the return on capital. And I find that part fascinating because people will end up all over the spectrum of some people believe that their capital has to generate a return. And I don't understand that, right? In the concept of no, it doesn't, right? The market doesn't have to do anything. You could lose it. And, and certainly uh, that was 
not an uncommon thing in the in the 90s right you know there were a number mm-hmm. i think that was at the root of what i think md was trying to do md management was to try and ensure that positions don't overextend themselves in ventures and end up with no money yeah it makes total sense you know one of the things you highlight there again is is that things change over time in in a in a short or certainly a long career and you know, one of those things that's common to society in general, but physicians in particular, and I would argue, uh, well, I think the, the numbers bear it out, surgeons uh, even more so is is the, the reality of divorce. How, how do you frame that event um, that I'm sure you see a lot with regard to financial stability and financial outlook and and uh, maybe even reverse engineering or splitting or however, you know, that, that would work for a, for a prof corp? Uh, you know, it's funny. We've, uh, every year, you know, fortunately, right. There's one or two divorces come through this office. Uh, this year seems to be a particularly busy year. I think there's been, you know, uh, five in the last six months. The, you know, the issues always seems to be the same in a divorce in terms of from, uh, the accountant's involvement or the conversation, right. And it's a function of two things. One, the division of property, right? So if there's a professional corporation and it has wealth in it, well, half of it is going to be going to a spouse if all of it was accumulated or considered marital property or whatever that number is. So that's part one, right? What does that look like? Um, and part two, and I'll revisit that. Uh, and then part two is what about support, right? So what is, how much income is being earned? And you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, the professional corporation is just a vehicle by which the profession professional earns income. So the support payments are really just a function of earnings and the professional corporation just provides that data to the lawyers to sort out based on whatever case law says X income or equals Y support. So that second part is really pretty easy. The professional corporation doesn't change that outcome. On the first part, on the division of property, that's complex. And the reason it's complex is, you know, uh, income in a professional corporation isn't the same as savings in an RSP or equity in the house. So you've got, you can't really compare apples and apples. There's apples, oranges, and pears. And where things can get messy or where I think, you know, clients are best advised is so long as the value of the professional corporation is properly discounted for the purpose of the divorce either for the after-tax value, or alternatively, the value of the Russian corporation uh, is cut in half, and half of the assets of the corporation are transferred into, you know, the uh, spouse's uh, newly formed corporation. There's, you know, there's more than one way to solve that problem. You know, and I can tell you, all five conversations this year have been to use a second corporation to cut the property in half in the PC. And that that type of structure or that type of planning requires a qualified you know, tax advisor and a qualified lawyer, right? You know, it's a it's a it's a area of expertise or, or specialty that you know you either know how to do a butterfly or you don't. And and so you know if someone is getting divorced or going through a divorce, you would want a lawyer, a divorce lawyer that's familiar that structure so that whether or not you go one way or the other, 
you're so advised, right? You know, and certainly I think that, I think that's the biggest challenge, I think, in a divorce today is, is just that, is, is having both the lawyer and the accountant advise both parties, here are what your options are, doesn't matter which one you pick, but you do have options, right? And that each one has a consequence, you know, and, and it's with today's tax rates at what they're at, you know, I had a conversation with a physician a couple of weeks ago which was, I, you know, we discussed the butterfly, you know, cutting the, the PC in half. And then when they talked to the lawyer, they got sidetracked, said it was too complicated, didn't want to go with it. And I'm like, that's cool, right? But even on the small amount of wealth that we're, we're talking about not butterflying, your tax consequence is six figures, you know, and I could explain that to them. After which the conversation was, well, maybe we should bother with the complication and not pay this, you know, $100,000 in additional tax that could be avoided, you know, and so from a divorce perspective, tax is probably your biggest expense in a divorce, if not properly structured. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I'm taking away from this, this conversation is just that how important it is to just realize for everybody that, you know, these things happen and, and paying attention to these things uh, which maybe aren't the most exciting things, you know, everyone wants to talk about hand sewn versus stapled anastomoses or some other technical thing in surgery. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that will really potentially make you uh, suffer in the long term. And so I'm curious, you know, it, it, just going back to sort of my my personal, um, uh, you know, situation in that I'm, uh, you know, new in my career. I'm curious if you have any uh, suggestions specifically for residents. I mean, we don't typically think about residents' um, financial planning because you know they, they have a, a relatively low salary. Uh, I guess from a uh, if you compare it to a fully trained physician or surgeon. But uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts or suggestions or advice for for residents in terms of financial planning. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the the first thought w- would be this is is you know, as the resident, like you're responsible, like only you know how much money you make and only you know what you want to do with that money, right? Or what, uh, whether you want to spend it, whether you want to save it, uh, what, what you want to, whether you want to buy a house, uh, whether you want to just live comfortably, it doesn't really matter. As, you know, as you figure that out, as you know, you understand what you want to do with the money, then the next conversation would be finding advisors, right, you know, certainly, you know, financial advisor and tax account, is to then tell them what it is you want to accomplish, right? And, you know, that's generally what happens in almost every relationship that I have that turns out to be successful. The conversation is, what do you want to do, right? Like, you know, let's talk about the lay of the land. Let's talk about, do you have a lot of student debt? Do you want to get rid of that quickly? Well, there's ways you can do that. Do you you have no debt and you want to buy a, a big house right away? or you want to live conservatively, or you want to travel, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what it is, but be clear on what it is that you want to accomplish. And then from there, the right structure follows. The, the advisor will then tell you how you can do that, how you can accomplish that, or what the consequence of that decision is. And then you can make the decision informed. And the reason that's so important today is after the first $200,000 of earnings, you're in partnership with the government. They're getting half, 
if you do nothing and you can always do nothing, right? You know, you're not, no one has to be tax efficient. It's not, it's not obvious. It's not an obligation. So, you know, I remember lecturing a couple of years ago at the docks lounge at the foothills and, and during the conversation, somebody had asked, um, it, it rather sheepishly, she said, you know, am I being foolish by not incorporating? I haven't incorporated for the last 10 years. And I'm like, well, not necessarily. What have you done with the money that you're making? And, and to, you know, and her response was, well, I've paid off my mortgage. And so from that perspective, that was her goal. She accomplished that goal. There was no uh, inefficiency. There's nothing wrong with that strategy. The certainty will sh- is she'll incorporate eventually. Every, every physician, uh, especially every surgeon that makes, you know, anything more than $500,000 a year will incorporate in their lifetime. You don't have to do it right away. If your goal is to achieve some other use financially or some other financial outcome, then so long as your structure matches that, then you'll end up with the right plan. But if your, if, you know, if your goal is to save wealth, right, you know, in the first couple of years, then nothing beats a corporation. But it's being clear on what it is that you want to do with the wealth that you're making. And I think that that's probably the number one shortcoming of, of you know, any resident that I've talked to in terms of that first year. It's a lot of them haven't even thought at length about what do you want to do with all this money that you're making? Again, it's uh, really sage advice, and I'm glad I'm talking to you now uh, as opposed to hearing this later. Another question that I got from one of my friends who just started community practice is um, he wanted to know what, what are the, the top reasons why uh, physicians get audited when they, they submit their, their accounting at the end of the year, and uh, how can we avoid that? <laughs> Uh, all right. Okay. Well, that's good. Very good question. There's four different, generally different areas that will trigger an audit. One of them is random. Your number just comes up. Um, in 25 years, I've seen that happen twice, right? So that one's pretty rare, right? So there's the, there's the random. Then there's what's called the selective audit, right? So a selective audit would be where CRA perceives an abuse. Um, certainly for professionals, uh, what's you know what they've chosen for selective audits over the last four years has been travel, dues and fees, and professional fees. And so what they'll do is once again, there's nothing you can do to avoid that. Statistically, X percentage of all professionals are going to get a letter in the mail asking for the supporting receipts for say their travel for the year. Once again, can't be avoided, and so nothing you can do about that other than keep good records. Right. The third one. Right? Is somebody actually contact CRA to suggest that you're doing something inappropriate? Right? Uh, that one's more common with in a divorce, right? Or you know, very uncommon for professionals. It's more common if you're a backyard mechanic or something like that. So there's that one, and then the fourth one is statistical variance. That's the one that you can actually control. And so an example of statistical variance would be uh, meals and entertainment for example, that exceeds your revenue by more than 5%, right? And so in that instance, you know, it's easy enough to measure, right? Or just an absolute dollar figure, right? Now for, you know, the most common one would be meals and entertainment. Um, Not certainly not a problem for this year, but maybe in the past, if you had, say, uh, season tickets to the Calgary Flames, that would be no small sum. And that amount would trigger an audit. 
right? And certainly has for a couple of my clients where they do have season tickets. There's nothing to be, you know, fearful of in an audit of that nature. In that type of audit, what you would want is records to survive the audit. And so if your goal is to avoid an audit, the consequence of avoiding the audit would be forfeiting expenses that you may be entitled to. And so you can certainly take that perspective. But if you are, know that you're probably leaving something on the table. A better standard would be to go, what can I do to survive audit? And what you can do to survive audit is to simply keep the appropriate records. And so from that perspective, if it's, uh, you just need evidence that the expense was incurred. So for meals and entertainment, you don't actually need the receipt from Earl's if you go to Earl's. If you have the expense for Earl's on your credit card, it's self-evident that that you went to a restaurant. Where you are at risk is if you decide to have host a function with your within your department and you go to Costco and you spend a thousand dollars on food and alcohol. In that instance, you would want to keep the receipt and then simply be prepared for the audit, right? Um, but statistically, you know, from an you know, in terms of audit, it's it would I would say is a rarity, right? You know, every professional will be audited maybe once or twice in their career, right, within the professional corporation, but that it'll be a function of uh, of these other components, right, such as a selective audit which you don't have any control over. The last question I wanted to uh, to ask you on the way out. Um, if you have any any advice or any uh, any sort of viewpoint of the concept of insurance, whether that's um, maybe you know mortality insurance or whether that's disability insurance, how, as a as a financial guru in general, how do you how do you view those two elements? Well, I mean, so there's uh, you know different kinds of insurance certainly that, that you've touched on, right? So there's the disability insurance, you know, and to the extent that you uh, have disability insurance, you know, I can't imagine anyone that wouldn't, but I do have some clients, physicians that have had to make long-term disability claims and, you know, and that it's paid for, you know, it was money well spent, you know, and to the extent that disability insurance is purchased, you have two options. You can do it through the corporation or you can do it personally. Um, if you do it through the corporation, then any benefits that are received are taxable. And most disability plans pay out at 60% on the presumption that you're not running it through the corporation. And so you know, bear in mind that if you do run it through the court, you have to pay tax on the benefit, and there's no one doing that outcome. You can't change your mind at a later, some later point in time. Uh, then there's critical illness, right? and critical illness can be purchased either personally or through the corporation as well. The advantage of purchasing it through the corporation is that the company gets to expense it. The disadvantage is if you do get benefits, then they're taxable, but critical illness is usually a lump sum as a result of some event. And I look at it in the context of it's really like short-term insurance. So, you know, it's better suited for the corporation. Also, if you don't make a claim, lots of critical illness plans will actually refund your premiums. And so, you know, from that perspective, there are a couple of good reasons to run it through the corporation. But once again, it's, it's a personal choice. For life insurance, there's different kinds. For term insurance, for example, you're really just ensuring that there's going to be a payout on death. There's zero benefit to you because you're dead. So 
it's really about providing for your state. And from that perspective, then the term insurance is quite useful to the extent that you don't already have enough wealth to self-insure, right? You know, if you've already got two or $3 million worth of wealth, um, then the term insurance is really just enriching uh, your estate after you're gone and all the power to you, but it's no longer a utility. Right? It's not serving its purpose, at least in my mind. On the other types of plans, such as whole life or, um, oh, I forget what the other one's called. Uh, you know, you know, the other types of life insurance that have a you know, savings component, I'm not a fan of those plans. Um, and so I'm probably going to offend anyone in the insurance industry by saying that, but I'm not a flat fan of them uh, on the basis that their key benefit is the tax deferral on the investment income realized in the plan, but that's only useful to the extent that you need to shelter that income. And with the way the tax rules currently exist on investment income and professional corporations is properly managed, you don't need the deferral. And so from that perspective, they're really selling a product that's going to give you a significant return 15 or 20 years down the road, but that you're, the value of that plan in the short term being you know, less than 10 years is zero because there's no cash surrender value in the first 10 years of those plans. And I find that those plans are oversold to residents or young professionals that don't actually need it. They don't need to shelter their investment income because they don't have enough to need sheltering. And so, you know, from that perspective, my advice would be when you are talking to an insurance advisor is the caveat that you'll make your decision after you've talked to your tax advisor. So that if you do decide to purchase one of these types of policies, it's in alignment with your broader wealth management strategy. And that one, at least that's the out, throw me under the bus as opposed to trying to uh, battle your way out all by yourself. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.